0: Well, friends, we are going to do something a little bit different in the sermon today. Um, Together with uh, a couple of the other churches in our family of churches, Christchurch East and Christchurch Beaches, uh, we are going to pause our First Peter series. We normally preach together with those two sister churches. Um, And we're going to pause that series uh, to do a standalone sermon just this week. We'll jump right back into First Peter next week. Uh, But a standalone sermon uh, on the topic of justice. Uh, defined biblically. Justice is a word that is on the news and it's in our minds. Uh, the chance of no justice, no peace fill our streets. How should we as Christians uh, evaluate that? How as Christians should we figure out what we believe about justice and how we pursue justice? You know, Christian preaching is always, uh, first and foremost, the proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us. But we believe that it's also one of the tasks of Christian preaching uh, to help Christians, uh, all of us, learn how to live our lives in the challenges that the day presents. To learn, as Jesus says, what it means. One of our jobs is to teach the church and all people to obey what Jesus teaches. And so how do we do that? How do we follow Jesus uh, in the midst of our cultural moment? Because, friends, uh, we cannot afford uh, to let a word like justice, a word that is as deep and as prevalent in our scriptures and in the Christian tradition, uh, we can't afford to look outside of uh, the scriptures to define justice for us. If we take our definition of justice from either the American political left or right, uh, we will miss some of the biblical richness and robustness and power of that term. And so this morning, we are going to look at Micah chapter 6. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading today is from Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love. Okay, thanks Haley. Y'all can be seated. If you're still standing for the reading at home, you can be seated now. Man, 2020 uh, has been a heck of a year already, hasn't it? And we are just uh, here at the beginning of June. I have a friend uh, named Brad who pastors a Presbyterian, a PCA church in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, He's planted a church there. It's a difficult uh, environment to plant a church in a university town out west. And like the rest of us, he's struggling. Um, struggling to find his way through these challenges. And I was, I was listening to him share uh, about what's been going on in his heart and in his life. And, you know, this is, we, we were talking prior uh, to uh, the uh, killing of George Floyd and the protests in its wake. So this was just talking with him about the turmoil uh, of coronavirus and the economic collapse in its wake and all of the division and conversations around that. And Brad was telling me that he had a conversation with an older pastoral mentor of his. And this friend, uh, this mentor, looked at him towards the end of their conversation and said, "Brad, if you could, if if Jesus was sitting right here with you right now, and you could ask him one question, what would you ask Jesus?" And Brad uh, said that he was surprised, but the question came right out of him, which was, he said, "The one question he would ask is Jesus." Am I doing a good job? When Brad shared that, something broke open inside of me um, because I realized that that question was at the heart of so much of what I've wrestled with over these past months. That's only grown more intense in these most recent weeks. As crisis after crisis seems to wash over us, I want to know that I'm doing a good job. I'm trying uh, in the midst of all of my uh, vocational responsibilities to do a good job, to follow Jesus uh, as a pastor, as a husband, and as a father, and as a citizen of our nation and our city. As I've talked with with you, I know that that question uh, this week is on your heart and mind. Jesus, am I doing a good job? Am I following you faithfully uh, through this moment as heavy and as difficult as it is? We all want uh, to live our lives in such a way as Christians uh, that we do the very best to follow Jesus faithfully with the resources and the knowledge at our disposal, Uh, to follow him faithfully, uh, to be a witness and a sign for him in our day. We all wanna know, I think, that we're doing a good job, that we're living our lives in such a way as to receive his well-done, good, and faithful servant. Now, of course, as Christians, we know Uh, that ultimately our righteousness, our approval, the love of God is not at stake here, right? He has loved us with an everlasting love. There is no amount of bungling that uh, I can do in the midst of this as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as an American uh, that will shake that. None of my confusion uh, should be able to cloud that, but there is a spirit born and God-given desire in every Christian. Uh, to follow our master, uh, to live our lives in obedience to him, to look to him to determine uh, if we are doing a good job, if we are following him faithfully. And as Kyle mentioned in our prayers, uh, there is so much confusion uh, that clouds that question these days. There is so much uh, that we're being exposed to. There's things that that we're maybe reading or seeing in the media or on social media. Uh, There's so much in our own hearts that brings confusion and that makes it difficult to know what Jesus would have us to do. And that's why I wanted us to go to this passage in Micah 6 today. I love it, and it's justly famous and well-known and well-memorized in the church uh, because of its simple clarity. In this passage, God himself answers the question, what does God require? He cuts through the confusion and the chaos to give a simple and direct answer. To do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. Our passage starts uh, with the words of a representative of Israel answering back to God. This is in Micah 6 that we're picking up the story, which means that there was a Micah 1-5 through that came before it. And Micah 1 through 5 is God presenting his case through the prophet Micah that his people have failed in their obligations to him in the covenant in some really significant ways, uh, perhaps most strongly uh, in the area of neglecting justice, neglecting righteousness and justice for the poor. We can look just as a summary at this at Micah chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 9. This will give you a flavor for Micah uh, before this point. Hear this, you heads of of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. He's addressing their kings, their nobles, their rulers, those in authority. You who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. Who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. What God is saying through Micah here is that you have, as a whole, from the religious leaders to the political leaders, in alliance together, you have neglected justice. You've neglected the basic obligations that you have to your neighbors. And uh, as a result, you might think that because you are God's people, because his presence is with you in the temple, that you are immune from his judgment. That God will judge those outside of his people, but he won't turn his judgment towards his people. And Micah is uh, the sustained case that no, no, God's people too are under his judgment. Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. That what we sow in our sin, we reap in death, and destruction, in chaos, in judgment. And God's people in Micah's day were receiving that condemnation from God. Friends, what uh, is what's going on in our nation today if not looking head on at the wages of our sin? Right, The chaos, the hatred, the prejudice, the division, All of it uh, is a direct result of both current and past sin that we have yet to deeply reckon with as people and as a culture. And so presented with that, we find ourselves in many ways like the Israelite who begins to speak in our reading in Micah 6, wondering what we do in light of that. And it's interesting because I think Micah's uh, representative Israelite here, his first response uh, is not a healthy one. Uh, But I do think it's the response that many of us have, is that he seeks uh, the path of penance. He seeks the way of quickly, when confronted with his guilt, of seeing to it that he can alleviate his guilt as quickly as possible. To make sure that he is one of the good people who's judged righteous and not unrighteous. He starts fairly sanely and then it quickly spirals out of control. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? So he starts by offering to God some of the sacrifices that God does require in the law. Some of the sacrifices that God rightly says are a part of his people dealing with their guilt before him. In the sacrificial system. Verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Now he's starting to lose control a little bit. Now he's gone from something that might rightly be considered a sacrifice to this hyperbolic statement about what if I kill thousands of rams? What if I bring rivers and gallons of oil? Will God then be satisfied? Will that then alleviate my guilt and ease my conscience? And then finally, he goes even to the point. Uh, of shameful idolatry. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now he goes to the point of of even offering what God prohibits, uh, the offering of human sacrifice to alleviate his guilt. Friends, uh, penance. Penance is, uh, we're going to contrast penance with repentance. Penance is, I think, the natural response of the human soul to feeling guilty. Penance is that thing in us that when we feel ill at ease with ourselves. Penance is that part of us that says, what quick words do I have to say or what actions do I have to perform to get myself out of the doghouse? Right? What words can I say to alleviate my guilt? What symbolic acts of righteousness can I perform to prove to God or to the world that in a world of all of these bad people, I'm one of the good people? Penance, friends, is entirely motivated by guilt. And its goal is the alleviation of guilt. Penance is about self. It's about easing our own sense of guilt. And I do think, friends, that penance, penance drives and has driven so much of our response to our current moment. Whether it's uh, proud statements on social media, whether it's the pictures we post, whether it's the the words or the actions that we say, so much of it is driven by this uh, natural desire to alleviate our guilt and to prove to the world that we are one of the good people that we are on the right side of whatever this is. And of course, uh, depending on what group of people you're trying to convince of your goodness, uh, that will take different shapes. It'll be different articles posted or different pictures posted. But all of it fundamentally will remain rooted in ourselves, rooted in alleviating our own sense of unease, our own sense of guilt. And penance changes nothing. Penance rooted in guilt cannot sustain transformative change in our lives, in our society. I don't know how many times I've told people in pastoral counseling for other things that guilt is a poor motivator for change, right? I don't care whether it's you feel guilty about some way that you failed in your marriage, if you feel guilty about some addiction that you've gone back to again, if you feel guilty about losing your temper. Guilt comes in a moment, and guilt is a good short-term motivator. Guilt changes things on the short-term to lead us to say certain words, to perform certain actions. And guilt motivates short-term reaction, but guilt is an insufficient motivator for long-term change. Penance is about giving vent to our angst, our sorrow, our guilt, and our outrage. And as a people, we are good at penance, and we are bad at repentance. Repentance isn't about feeling better. Repentance is about becoming better. Penance is about alleviating our conscience. And repentance is about a transformed soul. And only repentance really gives hope here. Only repentance goes deep enough in our hearts to truly deal with our sin. Penance, with its quick focus on assuring us that we are on the right side, that we are one of the good ones, lets us off the hook far too easily. A quick signal of our righteousness, and then we move on with our lives, move on with our day, convinced uh, that our conscience and our guilt have been alleviated. But repentance has the courage to ask of God in the words of the psalmist, Lord, search me and know me. Expose anything in me that's twisted that I need to see. Penance says, Lord, make me feel better about myself. Repentance says, Lord, if I need to feel worse about myself for a while, help me to see it. Help me to know it. Help to unearth it within me so that I might genuinely and truly change. Repentance is good news, friends. Guilt uh, only keeps us on the cycle of bad news. But repentance is an act of God's grace. It's a gift of His grace. Sure of His grace, we can say, Lord, don't don't just ease my conscience. Help me to see more of myself, more of my sin. If there's prejudice in me that I need to see, Lord, show it to me. If there's foolishness in me that needs to be corrected, straighten me out. The walk of repentance leads us deeper and deeper into God's grace. And it's only possible by his grace. Friends, our national history around issues of race uh, is largely a story of us being better at penance than we are at repentance. We respond to news stories or examples of racial suffering or injustice or prejudice. We are good as a nation at responding in short-term guilt-motivated displays. And then what happens? We move on, convinced that we've dealt with it in some way, convinced that that's been patched over. That's why we are good at short-term Uh, displays of outrage, and bad at sustained movements of repentance and reconciliation, bad at the slow and patient work of building a more just society, of building a more unified church. We need to pray for the gift of repentance. We need to pray that God saves us from a false penance, what Paul calls a worldly sorrow, that's more about us than it is about God, more about us than it is about our neighbor. But friends, the good news, if there is any hidden bit of good news in all of this, is that every single revival or renewal movement in the history of the church of any significance has started with repentance at a large scale. It started when people look to themselves finally and say, we don't know how to do this. We've made such a mess out of our own lives and out of our own society and out of our own uh, ordering of things that the only possible solution comes from outside of us. The only possible solution goes down the road of repentance, that it might go up the road of resurrection and new life. And so the representative Israelite first responds with false penance this spiral of sorrow and guilt, trying to get back in God's good graces. And God cuts through all of that noise. And he says, look, he, this is God speaking, has told you, O man, what is good. And what does Yahweh, your Lord, require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This looks at first like three things right? Which, as a preacher, you love it when things are three things. This looks like three points. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. But in reality, this is one thing. Doing justice is the the central part here, to do mishpat, the Hebrew word justice, which we're going to talk about. But that justice has to be done out of a heart of kindness and in a posture of humility. So we still have three things, the life of justice, the heart of justice, and the posture of justice. And these three things hold together like a mobile. Those things that you hang over a baby's crib, uh, maybe monkeys or birds or something like that, and the baby hits at it. And when they get knocked out of whack, they wobble and they don't hold together. But perfectly balanced, they hold together to present a picture of a righteous man and a righteous woman. What does it mean to live a life of justice? Well, this Hebrew word mishpat is a crucially important word. It appears uh, over 200 times in the Old Testament. It is so uh, dear to God's vision for his people. It's so uh, intimately tied to his covenant with his people. It so defines the neighbor obligation among his people that it's used over 200 times. It's used very often to describe God himself, who's described as a God of justice. And so to be a people of justice is to order our lives behind God's life and under God's life. And the Hebrew concept of justice uh, means, you can simply define it, it means to give someone their due. That in a just society, everyone is given their due. They're given what is owed them. By their society. This this picture really is the foundation of uh, Western thought that's rooted in people having rights. Right? A a survey of the history of society would say that human rights are not uh, naturally intuitive to all, right? That that prior to, uh, and if you look outside of the place where the scriptures of the Hebrew and Christian Bible uh, have had influence. Uh, you see the places where people are given the least amount of their rights. That our conception of people having certain inalienable rights endowed on them by their creator comes from this Hebrew notion of mishpat that we owe each other certain things. And now there's two emphases to mishpat in the Old Testament, two uh, angles on justice. The first has to do with punishing wrongdoing. Right, that that a portion of justice, of mishpat, is to give someone their due when they have done evil. Right, If someone has stolen, if someone has committed murder, if someone is doing evil and actively harming the community, then to give them their due means that you stop them. To give them their due means that they receive uh, some form of punishment and recompense for what they've done in order to make the community whole. And so that is, you might think of that as the negative side of justice. That's responding to the absence of justice, responding to wrongdoing, to bring justice back to bear on the situation. This very often is how we mean justice when we talk about it uh, in English, right? When we speak about criminal justice or the justice system, what we're talking about is how we as a society with the powers entrusted to the state respond to transgressions of the law. That's the first angle on justice, is to make sure that evildoers or wrongdoers are given their due. But the other element of justice that's often missed out on our contemporary conversations has to do with making sure that every man, woman, and child receives what's due to them by virtue of their membership in the community, by virtue of their bearing the image of God. It it has to do with preventing people from not receiving their share of the well-being and life of the community. A couple of biblical uh, illustrations here. Leviticus 24.22 says that you were to have the same mishpat or justice for the alien and for the native-born. So in an ancient society, someone who wasn't a uh, blood relative, someone who wasn't uh, a, uh, didn't belong by birth into the nation, was vulnerable to being treated poorly. Aliens and wanderers were often victims of of, uh, miscarriages of justice in the ancient world. And so God says, no, no, but you're to do, make sure that they receive the same mishpat, the same justice as the native-born Israelite. Proverbs 31.9, you're to defend the, the mishpat, the justice of the poor and the needy. What we see start to take shape is in the Old Testament, there was a cluster of people who were especially vulnerable to injustice, the poor, the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan. Usually all four of those will be listed together. Sometimes three out of the four will be listed. But those were the people who were most likely to be exposed to injustice and for whom God's people were meant to be focused on their receiving justice. And so it does... uh, it, it, it warrants us looking and asking, who are the people in our nation who often are at risk of being denied justice? Right. It requires us to look and say, in our world, who are those people uh, who are likely to be shut out of the life and just ordering of society? And the Christian church is meant to take onto ourselves the concern of the most vulnerable. That's why historically, both anciently and today, the church has been motivated to protect the unborn and the recently born, right? That we recognize rightly that those lives are vulnerable to a miscarriage of justice. They're vulnerable to assault. And any honest reading of American history has to take into account that Africans, African-Americans have been vulnerable to miscarriages of justice. And so it is worth our consideration and worth our attention to ensure that as people of justice, we are motivated to making sure that every man, woman, and child in our community, those inside the church and those outside the church, receive God's justice. I love this picture from Job chapter 29. This is Job answering God, talking about the life of righteousness that he has led. And it gives us, I think, an evocative picture of what a life of justice, of mishpat, looks like. Job says, because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him, the blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Listen to this. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice, or my mishpat, was like a robe and like a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. What a beautiful picture of a man clothed in justice, in righteousness, in fairness, in equity. What I love about uh, this Hebrew notion of mishpat, uh, and it exposes, uh, in some ways, the poverty of our language, Uh, is I love that Mishpat links together two concepts that we often split on, right? That that criminal justice, right? That maintaining a well-ordered and lawful society is a part of justice. And the cries that every single person, the vulnerable and the weak, the poor and the wealthy, the white and the black, have a share in societal justice that we can tend to split on those two things, right? If you look, um, oftentimes the pictures that dominate our news or what you look at when you look to the street is one group of people shouting out for justice, shouting out for societal change and justice, and then being pitted in the media or in our own hearts against police who are there to enforce justice and to maintain justice. And yet from the Hebrew cons- concept of mishpat, both are advocates of justice. Both are seeking the justice that we have to need. And if you find yourself feeling pressured between having to choose either the lives of the police or the life, dignity, and safety of our African-American brothers and sisters, then you have been—you uh, are thinking in a way that's been uh, shaped by the pressures of this world and not transformed by the teachings of the scriptures. Because mishpat unites the two. And it tells us that in order to have a functioning world, we need both sides of justice. We need God's righteous justice. Okay, let's try to land this talk of justice here in 2020, in June. Things change quickly. June of 2020. As present as we are uh, to these cries for racial justice, what does that require of us, of you and of me? Well, at a minimum, it means that we look at our own hearts and do the hard work internally to make sure that you and I treat every person with fairness and equity. That we do the hard work of rooting out prejudice in our own hearts to make sure that the people, when we interact with people, when we love one another, when we go to work, when we go to church, when we're interacting together, that we, as far as we're able, are doing the hard heart work of carving out and making sure that we are not personally guilty of racial prejudice. James chapter 2 says that it's not fitting for a Christian to show favoritism towards any within the church or outside of it. And so we have to do that work at a minimum to make sure that you are relating to people apart from racial animus or prejudice. But to be a person of justice does go further. It requires not only that we look at our own hearts, but that we look at our world. And that we be voices when we see people uh, crying out for justice, that we lock in with them, and that we listen uh, to to their telling of their story and what's happening. I want to give us two pillars that we can anchor this on. There are rightly Christians who grow nervous. Uh, when we start talking about justice in society, uh, there are concerns uh, that creep in uh, to Christians when we start talking about societal justice or social justice uh, that can uh, spark legitimate concerns that this is more informed by contemporary the contemporary left than it is by the scriptures, that it's more informed by Marxist ideals than it is by biblical teaching. And those are, those are valid concerns that Christians, again, we said at the beginning, need to be basing our vision of justice, not on what we read online, not on what we learned in, 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 uh, outside the church, but on what we learned from the scriptures. And so I want to give us two biblical pillars to think about when we think about broader systems of justice, right? These, uh, these do not owe to leftist politics or hopefully right-leaning politics. But these have been two of the pillars that have informed uh, the Christian political vision uh, that's given so much shape to Western democracy, including our own. All right, the first of these pillars is that power, rightly given and rightly used, is good and necessary. Right? That, authority, uh, isn't, um, that authority, given rightly and applied rightly, is necessary for the flourishing of society. And it's not evenly distributed among all of us, right? In a household with children, the mother and father bear more authority and responsibility for the flourishing of the family, right? In a a nation, the elected officials bear more authority delegated to them by the people in order to ensure a rightly ordered society. At your work, your boss has more authority Organizationally speaking, probably than you do, right? That all of us in this life have to answer to authorities, and that rightly given and rightly conceived, that authority is meant to be used for our good. This filters to the way that we think about uh, the police, right? That, that policing is an exercise in entrusted authority in order to maintain the well being and justice of a community. This is a basic application of the fifth commandment uh, in Christian ethics. If you look at um, our own uh, confessions, if you look at the Westminster larger catechism on the way that it expands the fifth commandment, you find a really robust and careful picture of what people in authority owe to those under their authority and what those under authority owe to those over them. And so in the midst of a world crying out for justice Christians should resist calls to justice that call for an abolition of authority. Uh, This is why, historically, Christians have been slow to revolution and quick to reform. Right, That our vision isn't for a society devoid of authority. That in anarchy, uh, chaos comes in and you get back to survival of the fittest. The most powerful, uh, once again, reasserting themselves over the weak in a society. And so Christians historically have been slow to talk about revolution, but at our best, quick to advocate for reform, quick to advocate for transparency and accountability and change and improvement. One of the things that we have right now, uh, to say the least, is a massive erosion of trust in our public institutions, the institutions of our politics and the institutions of our justice system. And we have to work. Towards rebuilding trust in our common life, which leads me to the second of these pillars. So the first is that power, rightly given and rightly used, is good. And the second uh, that's necessary to keep in mind with that is that people are sinners, and they remain sinners when given power. Right? This is uh, basic Christian anthropology. Right? The basic Christian view of the the pervasiveness of sin in our lives is that each and every one of us is a sinner. Each and every one of us is prone to error. And that doesn't stop when you become a person in power, right? I didn't stop being a sinner when I became a dad, Lord knows, right? Uh, Politicians, just try not to laugh, don't cease being sinners when they become politicians. In fact, there's something about power that actually amplifies human sin, right? This um, this is why when Christians have had a chance to speak into and help to form systems of government, one of the things that has been, that has been important to us has been accountability and checks and balances. Right, that, that no matter whether you how much you like a president, right, that president needs to be accountable to a legislative branch, and that they need to be accountable to a judicial branch. This is all a part of uh, so much of the founding impulse of Western democracy right, that we need transparency and we need accountability. And it's not an anti-police statement to say that those involved in law enforcement need transparency and need accountability and that we need to listen and learn. Why? For reform, so that we together can contribute and work towards a more just and well-ordered society together. We should resist that cynicism that says there are no good people in power, right? That is (laughs) admittedly a cynicism that is widely spread, right? That you cannot trust anyone in authority. No, no, no. God willing, uh, each of us is called to step into areas of authority in our lives, places where we're called to exercise godly power for the good of others. And so we shouldn't give in to the despair that it cannot be done rightly. But we also shouldn't give in and be foolish enough to be naive to say that those in power should not be held accountable. And so a Christian view of justice takes both of those things very, very seriously. So to be a person of justice. To be a person of justice means that you work to make sure that everyone in your immediate circle is given their due by you. And it means that you become an advocate that everyone in society is given their due in our common life. But it means more than that. For it to be Christian, it has to be done with what comes next. Not just that we do justice, but that we love kindness. This word kindness here is another one of those big, robust, often used, important biblical words. It's the word hesed. It is the call, it is the bond of unconditional covenanted love, right? If, if uh, justice is giving everyone their due, hesed is giving to people even when it's not their due. Hesed is me saying, I am going to love you and bind myself to you, even when it doesn't seem like you deserve it. And it is the bond that brings the church together in covenanted love with both God and with one another and reaches out in that kind of love to our neighbors, right? In a world calling for justice, even as Christians choose uh, when to lend our voice to that cry, our calls for justice always have to be met with an equal call of love, to be aware of how quickly self-righteousness and hatred creeps even into our calls for justice. And it needs to be colored and tinged with love throughout there's rightly been uh, i've I've seen this uh quoted in various ways uh publicly, which is that you should be aware of Christians who are willing to talk about racial reconciliation without also talking about racial justice without being making sure that everyone is given their due, and that uh, does need to be heard, but it, our world cannot afford to have Christians not speaking for reconciliation because if Christians won't speak for reconciliation. No one will. This has been the historic Christian contribution to the quest for justice and equity in our world. Right? It was whether it was Martin Luther King in 1960s America or Desmond Tutu in, in apartheid South Africa. Right? Uh, Tutu's wonderful book uh, with the, that I, I believe won the Nobel Prize uh, was titled No Future Without Forgiveness. And truly, that is the Christian testimony in times of division, that apart from reconciliation, apart from forgiveness, all our talking of justice is just going to keep us trapped in a cycle of violence, keep us trapped in a cycle of getting even, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We as the Christian church, in a way that we cannot claim for any other institution, we, Paul tells us, have been given a ministry of reconciliation that our founding charter is a charter of reconciliation, right? The core of our posture has to be one of God's reconciling love. That the cross reconciles us to God vertically, right? The vertical beam of the cross reconciling us to God and God to us. But there is that horizontal beam of the cross joining us together across all that divides us into one new family. Paul tells us in Ephesians that at the cross, God tore down the dividing wall of hostility that separated Jew from Gentile, North Korean from South Korean, Irish from English, and white from black. Right, That God tore down all of the divisions that we build up, building us one new family that bears the name of His beloved Son, The only thing that breaks the cycle of prejudice and violence in our world is reconciling grace, forgiveness, and unity. And then finally, the life of justice, the heart of justice, and now the posture of justice. God calls us to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with your God. We need to pray, friends. Lord, keep us humble. We have no prayer at walking together through this unless we learn to walk humbly through this with our God. Listen, I am a pastor. I'm a preacher. um, I talk for a living in some ways. I do a lot else, but I talk a lot. Um, As a preacher, as someone who talks for a living, I am prone to like my own ideas and to think that I am right. Culturally, there is tremendous pressure on us to grow more and more certain of our own rightness, right? This is, we see this in the ways that we polarize. We've seen our nation polarize over a disease. Now we're seeing our nation polarize uh, over this current crisis, over the dignity of Black lives, over order and justice in our society. And we cannot allow the church to polarize in the same way that the world is polarizing over these things. And the only hope that we have there is that we learn to walk humbly. Humility means that we acknowledge uh, that there's a whole lot more that we don't know than there is that we do know. right? Humility means that we learn to say, you know what, I might be wrong. My experience, my reading, everything I bring into this gives me a perspective. And I need others' perspectives. We need to sharpen one another. We need to learn from one another. Our pride is probably the greatest danger in the midst of this. Pride that gives us a certainty that that we're right, that our way of looking at it is right. Because friends, justice belongs to God. Ultimately, the phrase, no justice, no peace. Friends, from a Christian worldview, that is eschatologically true. That's a big word that means it will prove to be true at the end of all things. At the end, God's peace is brought in by God's justice as his king comes and as his kingdom comes. As he makes all things to be done on earth as they are in heaven. And as we seek penultimate justice in our world, penultimate peace, that is peace that tastes that peace no matter how faultingly, we can only do that as we admit our foolishness. As we offer our lives to God, as we say, God, correct what's broken, give wisdom to what's foolish, straighten out our way, and bring your justice and your peace into our troubled hearts, into our church, into the Christian community more broadly, and ultimately to our nation and to our world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do look to you for justice and peace. We recognize that we are often prone to think foolishly about these things. Um, Lord, that no matter how much work we do on ourselves, that we're still haunted by the ghosts of prejudice. And so Lord Jesus, we pray that you would teach us your justice, that you would help us to be a peacemaking people and a peace-loving people and a justice-seeking people. Lord Jesus, that you would make us a people who take seriously our ministry of reconciliation, that we might walk through this time as your people, not giving in to the insanity that swirls around us, but having our sanity restored to us by the gospel. Walking behind you is the only one who's ever embodied perfect justice, perfect peace, perfect love and faithfulness, perfect humility. Lord Jesus, help us to be more fitting followers of you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.